Well, what a great way to spend uh, the Friday afternoon before Good Friday, before Easter. Who could think of anything better than hearing Alan Friedman speak about his recent book? We're also very glad to have the director of the HRC, Steve Ennis, here, and the former chair, I believe, of the English, or are you still chair of the she English department? <laughs> <laughs> Midnight. <laughs> uh, Philippa Levine is going to introduce our speaker. I think neither of our speakers here need introduction in this in this room, but it's a great pleasure to um, welcome back our colleagues from the English department. It's always wonderful to have colleagues from the English department here. Um, both of um, these very distinguished scholars, of course, are perhaps best known for their work on modernism. Um, and looking at the handouts, I think that's what we're going to hear about today by the looks of things. You might infer that. <laughs> I, I could, I will infer that. Um, they, uh, they also both um, have a strong interest uh, and expertise in theatre, and the two, of course, go together beautifully, theatre and modernism, but both of them have been involved in the um, Actors from the London Stage programme that has been such a fantastic boon to the campus as well. So it's really just terrific to have them both here today. Welcome. Alan, Most of me? Yes. Oh, well, me you like first, that. anyway, Alan. Okay. Thank you, Roger. Thank you, Philippa. Thank you, David, for being here. So, hello, everybody, and welcome. I'm delighted to see you all. Uh, Samuel Beckett was so deeply enmeshed in the James Joyce circle during his early Paris years from 1928 through 1939 that James Nolson, his authorized biographer and one of his most insightful critics, dubbed them his Joyce years. But the surrealists and surrealism rivaled Joyce for Beckett's early and continuing attention, if not affection. So much so that Raymond Fetterman, a much quirkier critic than Nolson, and also a highly experimentalist novelist himself, calls 1929 to 45 Beckett's surrealist period. I submit that there is much truth in both of these somewhat contradictory claims, and that there's a further truth about the shape of Beckett's career that I will consider toward the end. Beckett's Joycean connections are well known and have been well explored, although critics generally consider that Joyce's influence waned after his death in 1941 and the end of World War II a few years later. Beckett's connections with the Surrealists and their work have been much less examined. Never much of a joiner, Beckett did not officially belong to the Surrealist group, although he was acquainted with many of the Surrealists and with much of their work. He was friends, for example, with Duchamp, Kandinsky, Francis Picabia, and Giacometti, with whom he collaborated on the construction of a tree for an early Godot production. He played chess with several of the Surrealists. He translated numerous Surrealist writings and he signed one of the Surrealist manifestos. Beckett also used many of the same images, perspectives, and motifs as the Surrealists, representing and exploring prenatal and dream states, body parts, the unconscious, non sequiturs, implausibility, madness, spontaneity, the marvelous, and something analogous to what André Breton called, uh, André Breton, who was the leader of the Surrealist group, called pure psychic automatism. Beckett's Joycean and Surrealist connections first converged in the March 1932 issue of Eugene Jolas's little magazine, Transition, which was subtitled, An International Workshop for Orphic Creation. 
On the Joycean side, it contains an excerpt in what was called basic English from the Anna Livia Pluribel section of work in progress, as Finnegan's Wake was then called, a photograph of a manuscript page from that work, and a section called Homage to James Joyce for his 50th birthday. The issue also includes Beckett's previously rejected story, The Joycean Sedendo et Crescendo, which is extracted from his first and as yet unpublished novel, then as yet unpublished novel, Dream Affair to Middling Women, as well as Poetry is Vertical, Joe Loss's manifesto on writing apparently derived from Jung, with its surrealist call for the hegemony of the inner life over the outer life, the hallucinatory eruption of images in the dream, the invention of a hermetic language, if necessary, the construction of a new mythological reality. Marianne Cause describes it as a widely admired manifesto, funny and serious and optimistic all at once. In a rare instance of his publicly expressing collectivist sympathy, Beckett, though not Joyce, signed the manifesto. Ruby Cohn suggests that while Beckett may not have participated in the manifesto's composition, at least one of its ringing sentences was consonant with his practice. The final disintegration of the I in the creative act is made possible by the use of a language which is a mantic instrument and which does not hesitate to adopt a revolutionary attitude toward word and syntax, going even so far as to invent hermetic language if necessary. That Beckett may have been of two minds about his signature is perhaps suggested by his ridiculing such French movements and documents in his lecture on one Jean de Chasse, a non-existent French poet whom he quotes in Dream and who, Beckett writes, came to a bad end. <laughs> Joyce indulges in manifesto mocking in Finnegan's Wake when he refers to ALP's letter in defense of her husband as her untitled Mama Festa, memorializing the most highest and, has certain guests, and then has certain guests at a literary salon come for to contemplate in manifest and pay their first-rate duties before the both of him. Beckett, in turn, has characters in his story Echo's Bones, relax, quote, relaxing from time to time to choir their manifesto, colon, boycott Poulter's measure. For all its recalling of Finnegan's Wake's elusive, obscure, endlessly restless, and verbally resonant language, Echo's Bones, with its horrible and immediate switches of the focus and the wild, unfathomable energy of the population, as Beckett's editor Charles Prentice wrote in rejecting the story he had commissioned, is surreal in its undermining of narrative causation and reading like a dream sequence or a series of discrete vignettes. It begins by depicting Balakwa, Beckett's kind of alter ego, fictional alter ego, who is resurrected after his death in a previous story, straddling a fence day in, day out, a foot in each of two worlds. Locations are dreamlike, shifting from one to another abruptly, whimsically. A pasture paved with edible mushrooms, a Parisian room, a graveyard, a seashore. Balakwa encounters a prostitute, the infertile giant Lord Gaul of Wormwood, Lady Gaul, whom Balakwa is called upon to impregnate and does, 
a cemetery in which he and a gravedigger dig up his grave so that he can prove it's empty. And a submarine of souls on the sea, wildly populated by various characters who, like Balakwa, died in the collection of stories, more pricks than kicks, including little Alba, waving from the conning tower and beckoning in a most unladylike manner. Beckett did not formally endorse surrealism any more than Joyce did, but the avant-garde, like Joyce, impacted his writings not only through the 1940s, but, I would argue, from first to last. In turn, he did what he could to further the surrealists' agenda, though he wouldn't have put it that way, just as he did Joyce's. Especially during the years 1929 to 45, his so-called surrealist period. Fetterman argues that Beckett's novels and stories of the first period are situated in a still recognizable setting, a city landscape, Dublin, London, streets are named, houses are described, even nature is described, though ironically. But rather than realistic descriptions, this staging, one might say, these scenes are surreal. Going even further than Fetterman, Daniel Albright maintains that Beckett spent his whole life under the spell of the surrealist exhibition, as he put it. Though it's hard to know exactly how to read that last phrase, since Beckett used it mockingly in his first completed play, Eleutheria, written in 1947. A likely reference to the London Surrealist Exhibition of 1936, which the major surrealists, Breton and Paul Eluard, along with Roland Penrose, Man Ray, and George Reavy helped to organize, the phrase is spoken by Eleutheria's cynical, dying, world-weary Henri Crap as a way to characterize his wife's partitioning of their apartment with barbed wire. John Pilling writes that Beckett was often in contact with the artists and writers connected with the great surrealist exhibit in 1936, and he was one of the translators of Thorns of Thunder selected poems by the surrealist poet Paul Eluard, which was published in conjunction with the exhibition. And his name and an inaccurate transcription of one of his translations appear on an exhibition flyer. Although hard evidence is lacking, Lois Gordon writes that it was a show which one must assume Beckett attended during a period when he was living in London. Beckett was also intimately involved at the time with Peggy Guggenheim, who ran the Guggenheim Jeune Gallery in London, which exhibited surrealist and other contemporary art. Max Ernst, who had lived in a menage a trois with L.U.R. and his wife Gala, subsequently married Guggenheim. And then the surrealist painted painter Dorothy Tanning, so the connections proliferated. <coughs> Beckett's monetary needs were great during the two periods when he did most of his translations of work by others, the early 1930s and the late 40s. But affinity may also help to explain his being repeatedly asked and drawn to translate and therefore interpret and promulgate the surrealists above all, even if he didn't always want that connection widely known. <laughs> Nolson writes that Beckett did far more translations than anyone has ever realized, for many of them appeared at his own request unsigned. At the time he was writing Dream of Fair to Middling Women, Beckett translated at least 16 pieces, poems and prose poems, for the surrealist number of Edward Titus's little magazine, This Quarter, September 1932, 
that Breton guest edited, and that's your handout number one, uh, is the con table of contents for that issue. Beckett's translations garnered high praise from Titus, the journal's editor. Quote, we cannot refrain from singling out Mr. Samuel Beckett, Samuel Beckett's work for special acknowledgement. His rendering of the LUR and Breton poems in particular is characterizable only in superlatives, meaning, presumably, that he had captured the surrealist quality of the originals. And, according to Albright, Beckett's early translations of the surrealists were as important to his artistic development as his critical studies of Proust and Joyce. Titus demonstrated that the praise was genuine and heartfelt when he subsequently commissioned Beckett to translate Rambeau's Libato Ivre, for which the editor happily paid Beckett, even though this quarter folded before it was published. Ironically, the translation was subsequently again displaced from its designated slot, this time in contemporary poetry and prose of 1936, by a letter from, Edward, uh, from Ezra Pound, inveighing against what he called the coward surrealists. Beckett's Drunken <coughs> Boat was finally published in 1976 and then included in his uh, collected poems the next year. This quarter's surrealist number also contains 10 pages of prose and poetry by Tristan Zara, without a translator ascribed to them. John Pilling and Peter Feifeld argue persuasively that they were translated and left unsigned by Beckett, who had written to his friend Thomas McGreevy about translating Crevel and then Zara next, presumably anticipating upcoming translations for this quarter. The Zara translations include imagery that might well be described as Beckettian or surrealist. The prose poem, Like a Man, for instance, ends with chalk, dust, ash, an image that resurfaces in Endgame, and a prose excerpt from the Antihead begins the low sadness of a desolate landscape, the low sadness of a few dwellers in blackness, imagery that recurs repeatedly in Beckett's writings. Having played a major role in this quarter's surrealist number, Beckett would have been familiar with Breton's comprehensive statement as guest editor, Surrealism, Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow, and would presumably have had a mixed reaction to it. Lois Gordon suggests that Breton's earliest manifestos emphasized a number of elements that must have been of enormous interest to Beckett. Dreams, paradox, chance, coincidence. These early writings also discussed humor as visible at life's most tragic moments. The intermingling of conscious and unconscious thought, thought functioning would become both subject and technique in the Beckett canon. In addition to Breton's espousal of dreams, most con congenial to Beckett would likely have been his linking of humor and tragedy. In Endgame, for example, Nell comments, that nothing is funnier than unhappiness. Breton's, uh, I, I grant you that, it's the rest of that quotation. Breton's <laughs> emphasis on cinematic imagery that resembled Eisenstein's montage, and Beckett was a great fan of Eisenstein. The necessity of going onward toward discovery, automatic writing that manifests itself as a monologue poured out as rapidly as possible, as like Lucky's and Godot, over which the subject's critical sense claims no share, 
and a refusal to rein in the imagination regardless of the fear of going mad. Beckett may have undergone psychotherapy out of such concern for himself, and perhaps also a desire to understand what was happening to Joyce's daughter, Lucia. But he didn't shy from representing madness in his writings. It is as commonplace in his fiction as it is in the work of the surrealists. In his story, Fingal, for example, Balakwa points to the portraying lunatic asylum outside of Dublin and says, my heart's right there. And the narrator of the story, Love and Lethe, concurs. A mental place was the home for him. Murphy's quest for mental freedom leads him to an institution for the insane, which he finds an agreeable place to work, and where he plays chess with the schizophrenic Mr. Endon before dying shortly thereafter. Watt ends up in an asylum with his narrator Sam, as does Malone, who boasts that I feel in extraordinary form. Delirium, perhaps. Along with his fictional character, McMahon, and who views the asylum, the house of St. John of God, as it's called, as a little paradise. In Endgame, Ham says he once knew a madman, a painter, who thought the end of the world had come, that it was covered in ashes, and that he alone had been spared which may well be the situation for the play's survivors. And like Endgame, much of the late fiction occurs in what the narrator of the late work, Ilseen Ilsed, calls the madhouse of the skull and nowhere else, a place notably occupied by Lucky in Waiting for Godot, the unnameable, and by all of Endgame, as emphasized by the skull-like set that Roger Blinn created with Beckett for its initial performance in 1957. According to the narrator of Beckett's The Calmative, we are needless to say in a skull. All the mortals I saw were alone and as if sunk in themselves. Stanley Kontarski writes that it is a descent most often into an emblematic skull from which Beckett's fiction will never emerge. The image anticipates not only the skullscapes of the trilogy, the, the three late pieces, that comprise nowhere, no how on, but the dehumanized dystopic tale, The Lost Ones, and what is generally called the post how it is prose. Late Beckett works like Lessness and Worstwood Ho can sound at times like mad ramblings or automatic writing or the workings of the unconscious behind the skull. Worstwood Ho, for example, occurs in the skull, all save the skull gone, the stare, alone in the dim void, alone to be seen, dimly seen, in the skull, the skull alone to be seen. The narrator of Beckett's last major work, Stirrings Still, ruminates on whether he was in his right mind. He could not but begin to wonder if he was in his right mind. But Beckett, ever the scrupulous and self-aware craftsman, consciously produces something akin to what Breton thought an artist could achieve only by turning off his mind. <clears throat> Beckett would also likely have found uncongenial Breton's ex-cathedra tone and pronouncements, his arrogating to himself the authority to arraign those turncoats from surrealism, his insistence that his followers must adhere to a political and social agenda of his determining, one that he sought to organize in the four corners of the earth. 
less solemnly Breton describing the automatic writing he produced with Philippe Soupeau, delighted in some bits of rampant buffoonery, a very high degree of immediate absurdity, a, light, a delight that Beckett likely would have shared. But Breton then denounced humor as one of the two great reefs on which romantic art, viewed as a predecessor of surrealism, must come to grief. Uh, the other reef is what he calls servile imitation of nature in its accidental forms. Although he edited the 1940 anthology of black humor, a term he claimed to have invented, Breton seems to have been conflicted about humor, viewing it as a useful weapon in the subversive's arsenal and in the form of nonsense potentially constructive in restoring the childlike paradise of the surreal, but wary of its potential for use against him and his movement. Beckett, a man of inordinate natural dignity, seems not to have shared Breton's fear of appearing ridiculous. Though he often made dismissive comments about his translations, Beckett nonetheless seemed pleased with at least some of them and eager for more, and not just for the money they might bring him. In October 1932, a month after the publication of this quarter's surrealist number, he wrote to his friend Thomas McGreevy that he had recently contacted Nancy Cunard to say it was always a pleasure to translate L.U.R. and Breton. And again, he said, I think I'll have real pleasure in transposing them. He sounds more skeptical when noting that A.J. Leventhal says that all good old men go surrealist. surrealist. Haven't observed it in myself, he adds. Though he reiterated his praise of surrealist work in a 1949 letter after translating what he called the Picasso sequence by Eluar, which I think is lovely. Still, when asked to update his collected poems in 1961, Beckett included only a few of his surrealist translations. Seven poems by Eluar, eight Maxime by Sebastian Chamfort, and Apollinaire's Zone, plus Rambeau's Le Bateau Ivre. Shortly after Beckett completed his work for this quarter, Cunard did indeed ask him to undertake significant translation work for her, for her compendium Negro, Negro in Anthology, which was published in 1934. Beckett ultimately translated 19 pieces for Negro, contributing more to the volume than, than anyone except Cunard herself and Raymond, Raymond uh, Michelet, her then lover and principal contributor. That's hand, handout number three. Is, uh, two is the uh, table of contents for Negro, and three is uh, the list of Beckett's, the work Beckett translated. At least six of Beckett's Negro translations were of surrealist works, and his views of them were decidedly mixed. Cravel's The Negress and the Brothel, which he called miserable rubbish, and took great liberty in translating, despite having been enthusiastic about Crevel's work earlier. Ernst Mormon's poem, Louis Armstrong, Benjamin Perret's Black and White in Brazil, uh, Robiera Viela's A Short Histor Historical Survey of Madagascar, which Beckett called Bowles, uh, Georges Sadoul's Sambo Without Tears, a rather curious translation of Sadoul's title, Le Negre à la Usage des Enfants, and murderous humanitarianism, an attack on the church and what he called its god of cash, which was signed by 11 members of the so-called surrealist group in Paris. 
which Beckett referred to as the whole Surrealist Guild. One can see why Cunard was keen to have Beckett translate for Negro, but what was in it for him? Her project with its anti-racist, communist, and surrealist agenda seems superficially an unlikely one for Beckett to have committed to. His possible motivations for doing this work include financial need, friendship for Cunard, and gratitude to her for awarding his poem Horoscope, the prize in her contest for the best poem under 100 lines on the subject of time, and then publishing it at Her Hours Press as Beckett's first standalone publication. Perhaps he also had an interest in, and even some sympathy for, the causes that Negro espoused. The financial explanation I find unconvincing. Nelson quotes Beckett as expecting to be paid 25 pounds for the translations for Negro, a considerable sum. But Beckett had spent Cunard's 10 pounds that she awarded him for horoscope on a dinner for friends, thus benefiting only briefly and tangentially from it. So it's doubtful that he would have undertaken the Negro translations for the money alone. Besides, Cunard, who had been cut off by her mother in 1932, stated from the start of the Negro project that she could pay none of its contributors. Jane Marcus maintains that no one received any remuneration for the work they did for it. And Hugh Ford notes that several potential contributors balked when they, uh, when they learned that Nancy did not intend to pay for material. Claude McKay, the poet, who had already written and submitted his contribution for Negro, angrily withdrew it, when to his apparent dismay and surprise, Cunard reiterated that no payment would be forthcoming. Beckett's friendship with Cunard, which became lifelong and deep, was indubitably a factor. She had, before the Negro Project, supported him generously when she had money and he had need. She visited him often when he was recovering in the hospital from his stabbing assault in 1938. In the 1950s and 60s, when she was the one in financial difficulty, Beckett sent her signed copies of both Horoscope for her to sell to support herself and of Godot signed with love from Samuel. She thanked, she thanked him with an elegiac poem for Sam, December 15, 1963, in which she says, you gave. Whether or not Beckett was paid for his translations and the preponderance of the evidence suggests that he was not, and whatever his views about Negro's agenda, he undertook the task seriously, even as he disparaged much of what he was translating during a period of personal, professional, financial, and psychological difficulty. Beyond his friendship for Cunard, Beckett may have had some moral and intellectual sympathy for her impressive collectivist project, which flaunted its political, cultural, and aesthetic agenda during a time, the Depression, when economics was the major public issue. According to Michelet, the creation of Negro was an act of homage and recuperation for Cunard. It was a question of erecting a monument to black culture, of denouncing fallacious arguments about the benefits of civilization so generously brought to, the, brought to the blacks, and of saying to the blacks themselves that they would have to find a compromise between the ancient, almost moribund civilizations that could be regenerated and the European style of life. In Beckett, a highly individualistic and famously, but not entirely, apolitical writer, the ironic and often despairing quality of his fiction and drama can be read as commentary on the unimprovability of the human condition. 
While Lawrence Harvey argues that Beckett is especially antagonistic to art that is so socially engagé, Gordon maintains that Beckett had powerful convictions regarding his moral obligations to others. He could not accept the evil imposition of suffering on others with his arms folded, whatever the personal risk. While Beckett was no more comfortable aligning himself with communism than were most of the surrealists, his large contribution to Negro suggests a belief in cultural and individual equality and worth. It was a belief that he demonstrated through his life, throughout his life in his personal, personal relationships, his wartime participation in the French resistance, his work helping to resuscitate the Red Cross Hospital at Saint-Lô, Normandy after the war, his responding to a request to assist Ada, uh, the Society for the, uh, to assist uh, victims uh, of repression, by writing Catastrophe, uh, the play Catastrophe, and dedicating it to the playwright Václav Havel, who had been imprisoned by the Czech government, and his, and his, and his Beckett's depictions, which valorized those so depicted without ennobling their suffering, of the downtrodden, the infirm, the hapless. He said, my people seem to be falling to bits. My characters have nothing. But remarkably, for the most part, they survive. They persist. Given Negro's promulgation of social, racial, cultural, and political justice, Beckett's contribution seems an act of support and commitment, not only to Cunard, but also to, of her causes, including surrealism, whose proponents largely shared her racial and political agenda. Surrealism was marked by numerous contradictions and paradoxes. Most notable was its advocating violence and madness as a principle, while also being strongly antipathetic toward the destruction and irrationality of the Great War, in which, to their subsequent regret, many surrealists had served. Because the surrealists accepted Freud's theory that we are born with aggressive instincts that must be both satisfied and contained if civilization is to function, Breton, like the earlier futurists, made violence, spontaneity, and irrationality central to the movement by espousing them in surrealism's founding manifesto. A.J. Cronin maintains that from the beginning, a cult of violence, which was more than just intellectual, had been one of the principal weapons in the surrealist armory. The first issue of their review had published a photograph of Germain Berton, who had just murdered a prominent right-wing member of the reactionary Action Francaise, defiantly surrounded by all the members of her group. Yet, like the Dadaists before them, the surrealists also denounced what they came to view as the Great War's mindless devastation, chaos, and absurdity. Max Ernst, a German national who served on both the Western and Eastern fronts, spoke for many of his generation when he said of his time in the army, on the 1st of August, 1914, Max Ernst died. He was resurrected on the 11th of November, 1918. According to Tristan Zara, who spent the war in neutral Zurich as a political protest, never has a causes belli been more preposterous than that of World War I. The whole European world went to hell because some down and out Serb killed a couple of rich and powerful Austrians. These assassinations should have been treated as a simple criminal offense, and that should have been that. Instead, 
The assassin assassinations became the ultimate absurdist act, a meaningless rationale for the most extravagant slaughter in human history. Apollinaire, who gave surrealism its name in 1917, had initially called war a beautiful thing. But he came to view the apocalyptic hell of the battlefield, where he was seriously wounded, as the work of a mad humanity putting out the stars with shellfire. And then, just after the war ended, he wrote, the time has come to light the stars again. But he died from his war wound shortly thereafter. Accepting Freud's theory of aggression, surrealists came to differ over whether violence should be expressed literally, as Breton insisted, or metaphorically, as Blenwell maintained. Even Zara was not a pacifist. He joined both the Republicans in the Spanish Civil War and the French resistance during World War II. Breton's autobiographical novel, Nadia, whose narrator contemplates such surrealist principles as violence, spontaneity, and irrationality, ends with the statement, beauty will be convulsive or will not be at all. And as if designed to illustrate Breton's misogyny, numerous surrealist works explicitly represent violence against women. I've got some illustrations of this that I hope will work here. Yeah, okay, so we've got Magritte's. Um, the menaced assassin with the female body draped and exposed. Giacometti's sculpture. Oops, that was the wrong one. Woman with her throat cut, though you might not recognize her as such. Um, Magritte's The Rape depicts a, a naked female torso missing a head, but with, a prom with prominent breasts. Uh, navel and vagina that taken together suggest a face as much as they do a body. A face eerily and blankly observing the observer and topped with a full head of hair. Dada and surrealist art generated an aesthetic and rhetoric of body parts that became common cultural currency after the war and that greatly impacted Beckett's writings. In Zara's play of the Gas Heart, the characters, uh, and this is 1921, who were played in the first production by, in Paris by major Dadaist figures, several of whom became surrealists, are named for specific facial features. The eyebrow, the eye, the nose, the neck, the mouth, and the ear. These are the characters in the play. Acting out his principle of violence, Breton led an assault on the costume-hampered actors, others responsible for the production, and the theater itself that terminated the initial performance of the Gast Heart, the Gas Heart, and caused a riot that had to be halted by police. They took their art seriously in those days. <laughs> Breton's action climaxed the split with the avant-garde group and led to dueling proclamations signed by numerous adherents on both sides. Zara's anti-authoritarian art manifesto, The Bearded Heart, and Breton's prescriptive Surrealist Manifesto. Numerous Surrealist artists took their cues from Zara's representation of body parts. Jean Arp created detached mustaches that represent the pompous bourgeois arrogance and stupidity that led to the war in which he had refused to serve. Francis Picabia's Olga in, uh, shows the head of a beautiful woman emerging despite being partly obscured by several free-floating eyes and an extra nose and mouth. A precursor of Beckett's play, Not I, which features a bright red mouth emerging from a black curtain eight feet above the floor, Jean Cocteau's film, The Blood of a Poet, has mouths materialized everywhere, all over the screen. 
starting with an artist sketching a face whose mouth begins to move. He tries to rub it out, but the mouth attaches itself to the palm of his hand. He then places it on a female statue, which begins to speak, urging him to pass through a mirror into another world. In Dorothy Tanning's surreal painting, A Very Happy Picture, a figure holding an umbrella over here stands with his back to the observer while looking up at a brightly lipsticked mouth up in the curtain there, floating in a flowing curtain above two lower body torsos that are here and here. It is a painting from which Beckett's auditor and mouth in Night Eye might have emerged. The title and the presence of an umbrella also suggest a possible source for happy days, in which when he wields a parasol, it suddenly erupts into flames. Both Ernst's celebs, I'm going to talk about that figure for just a moment, and Giacometti's walking woman statue depict headless and distorted, and distorted female torsos in accord with Bre Breton's sexist notion of women as headless muses, though the trace of a face appears in Giacometti's statue. I don't know if you can see it up here. Yep. But the reverse was at least as widespread. Oneric images of heads or upper torsos were sculpted or painted by Brancusi, his Sleeping Muse series, starting in 1908. Uh, Di Chirico, this is supposedly uh, Guillaume Apollinaire, uh, and Ernst, uh, and Ernst um, uh, Ubi Imperatur. Giacometti, who was sometimes referred to as a miserableist, as if, it were a as if it were a movement that others like Beckett might join, uh, variously and repeatedly represents what seems to be the consequences of violence. Body parts, often heads, and images of surreal entrapment. For example, disagreeable object. A sort of phallus with spikes. That also includes a face. And the surrealist table, in which a partially cloaked head of a long-haired woman startlingly views a hand, presumably her own, across a table. Victor Browner's Wolf Table or Surrealism, The Poetry of Dreams, similarly depicts a fox uh, bust angrily contemplating its tail across a wooden table from which it partially emerges. Born in 1906, Beckett was of course too young for the Great War, but he experienced its terrible consequences, including the fragmented and disjointed imagery of modernist art, the fragmented literature of modernism, Winesburg, Ohio, Ulysses, The Wasteland, Pound's Cantos, the run-up to World War II, and then his own wartime experience, out of which he came to write a literature of bodily decrepitude, suffering and endurance, set in a bleak, devastated landscape. Like the Surrealists, uh, uh, Beckett's work is replete with body parts often limbs represented as independent agents. And while he did not share the sur surrealist crude misogyny, he did title his first novel, Dream of Fair to Middling Women, and represent an upper-bodied Winnie in Happy Days, spending her time rummaging in her capacious handbag. Like Ernst, men shall know nothing of this, which depicts two conjoined pairs of legs floating in the sky above two veiled and robed figures, 
one of whom seems to be carrying a baby or an enlarged hand. Take your choice. Beckett deploys body parts not as symbols or even synecdoches, but as images of incompleteness or disconnectedness, as if birth or life has become a piecemeal affair when it manages to happen at all. The narrative voice in Beckett's prose work, Company, for example, depicts an unidentified you awaiting an assignation. Her light step is heard. Her face appears at the window. The height or length you have in common is the sum of equal segments. A single leg appears, seen from above. You separate the segments and lay them side by side. Hell of an assignation, I think. The voices in the 13 prose pieces that comprise texts for nothing struggle in vain to construct or sustain a coherent identity or narrative. The text one narr narrator says to the body, up with you now and I can feel it struggling. I say to the head, leave it alone, stay quiet. It stops breathing, then pants on worse than ever. I should turn away from it all, away from the body, away from the head, let them work it out between them. In text three, the voice speculates that he might sprout a head at last, all my very own, in which to brew poisons worthy of me and legs to kick my heels with, and perhaps two legs or one in the middle. I'd go hopping or just the head, nice and round, nice and smooth, no need of lineaments. Text four offers a head strewn with arms laid down and corpses fighting fresh and a body I nearly forgot while text eight's narrator wonders, what's the matter with my head? I must have left it in Ireland, in a saloon. It must be there still, lying on the bar. And text 10's fancies that the head has fallen behind. All the rest has gone on, the head and its anus, the mouth, or else it has gone on alone. And text 11 reduces the narrator even further. No arms, no hands, better by far, as old as the world and no less hideous, amputated on all sides, erect on my trusty stumps. Among the most startling and original images in the theater are Beckett's truncated or partial figures in Endgame, Happy Days, Play, and Not I. Beckett anticipated his depictions, his depiction of Happy Days uh, Happy Days Winnie, first duck up to her breast and then in Act Two, up to her neck in a mound of earth. In the unnameable's vision of Malone, I see him from the waist up, he stops at the waist, as far as I am concerned. The absurdity of Happy Days results not only from Winnie's extraordinary situation, but also from her blasé attitude about it. She apparently accepts her imprisonment as normal, even while complaining that the earth is very tight today. Can it be I have put on flesh? I trust not. She recalls that things are no longer what they were. When I was young and foolish and beautiful possibly, I speak of when I was not yet caught in this way and had my legs and had the use of my legs. She acknowledges that her circumstances are surreal. All seems strange, most strange, never any change and more and more strange. Winnie also thinks that her situation might improve as magically as it had worsened because she's, uh, sorry, because she's a creature of the air, think of her as a bird with oil on her feathers, Beckett suggested. And because gravity no longer seems to work as it used to, 
She says, I fancy that if I were not held in this way, I would simply float up into the blue. And that perhaps someday the earth will yield and let me go. The pull is so great, yes, crack all round me and let me out. Or her circumstances could worsen. One day the earth might cover my breasts, as it does in Act Two, and in so doing somehow expunge her freer past. Then I shall never have seen my breasts. No one ever seen my breasts. Stasis and alternation, alteration collide as she is constrained to accept a condition, to have always been what I am and so changed from what I was. Evoking a metatheatrical perspective, Winnie recalls a couple who came upon her and Willie, and Willie her semi-mobile husband, and failed to make sense of their circumstances. Standing there gaping at me, Winnie recounts, what is she doing, she says. Sorry, what is she doing, he says. What's the idea, he says. Stuck up to her ditties in the bleeding ground. What does it mean, he says. What, what's it meant to mean? Why doesn't he dig her out, he says. What good is she to him like that? What good is he to her like that? And so on. Usual tosh, Winnie comments. But the wife's mocking response goes some way toward normalizing Winnie's situation. <coughs> and you, she says, this is the wife, the couple. What's the idea of you, she says. What are you meant to mean? Yet it's also possible that Winnie only imagines the couple as a way of articulating the question that presumably must be uppermost in her mind. Why doesn't Willie try to dig her out? James Nelson suggests that images of partial entombments, including these, may have surfaced from the depths of Beckett's own imagination. But they also came from his experience. For example, Bunuel and Dali's An Andalusian Dog, a film that Beckett almost certainly knew, employs images of, of the violence and cruelty that Breton advocated in acting, beginning with an eyeball being sliced with a razor blade and ending with a couple, perhaps representing suppressed human emotions, uh, surreally sunk in the sand up to their breast bones. Ernst painting, homage to W.C. Fields and his little chickadee, derived from the collaboration of Fields and May West uh, in My Little Chickadee, a film, 1940 film set in the American West of the 1880s. Shortly being captured by a highwayman, Miss, the, the May West character saunters unharmed into town and coolly explains, I was in a tight spot, but I managed to wriggle out of it. Her pronouncement anticipates the circumstances of many Beckett characters who are in tight spots, but can scarcely wiggle, let alone wriggle out. Ernst paints West like Winnie in Happy Days um, as, a, as a plump, big-bosomed bust and head wearing a clownish, ornate hat and holding aloft an open multicolored parasol, perhaps having just burst into flame like Winnie's. With the Fields figure off to the side, that's, this is the Fields figure, wearing a top hat and seeming like Winnie's mound, either to be holding her up or constraining her, or both. And while no hard evidence, well, maybe I'll skip this. It's getting on, are we? Well, let me just skip this. I was gonna give you a little bit about Angus McBean and his theater photographs. Uh, and his depiction of all sorts of women, including these two, Flora Robeson and um, I think it's Doris Day, in very uh, Dali-esque, Beckettian uh, poses. Um, and then 
despite all of this. Against all odds, continuity remains Beckett's predominant motif. The unnameable demands keep going, going on. Call that going, call that on. As his tone progresses from mocking to panic to resignation to continuing against all odds. As the narrator of text 10 insists, no, no souls or bodies or birth or life or death. You've got to go on without any of that junk. That's all dead with words, with, the ex with excess of words. <coughs> Commenting on catastrophe, Nelson sums up with what he sees as Beckett's mindset. Beckett is about going on, persisting. However much you reduce somebody to an object, a victim, there is this resilience and persistence of the human spirit. Despite initial appearances to the contrary, affirmation is strong even in catastrophe. The late play, which is often read as prophetic of Vaclav Havel's, being freed from prison and becoming president of Czechoslovakia. Perhaps unsurprisingly, when Havel arrived in Wenceslas Square to assume the presidency, posters proclaimed and students chanted, Godot is here. <laughs> As if seeking to reprise the bodily inventory that plays out in happy days, and not I, the autocratic D in, in catastrophe, which stands for director, dictator, who knows, seeks to mold and reduce an immobilized staged figure, P, prisoner, protagonist, in order to effect an homage to, po to power. D dehumanizes and aestheticizes P by dividing him into a set of discrete body parts, surreal synecdoches, which he manipulates in drains of color. Hands exposed, joined, whitened, cran cranium whitened, toes exposed, head down, necks, shins, knees bared, and whitened. At the end of the play, as Enoch Rader posits, the dress rehearsal becomes the performance with the surreal intrusion of a play audience's reaction, a canned burst of applause. But that's not quite the end. P startlingly challenges and thwarts D's intention when, breaking the frame, he courageously and defiantly raises his head and stares down both the eerily summoned audience, whose applause we suddenly hear, and the actual audience in the theater. P's gesture may seem hard to read at first, but Beckett was clear in his own mind about it. There is no ambiguity there at all, he said. He's saying, you bastards, you haven't finished with me yet. Like Joyce's Leopold Bloom standing up to the xenophobic citizen in chapter 12 of Ulysses, P's action is, among other things, a noble and heroic act of self-assertion, a political and theatrical resistance to the surreal violence that, that D has sought to impose on him. By so doing, <coughs> P reclaims his various parts, thereby reasserting not only his figural reality and meaning, but also his humanity and wholeness. It's the sort of ultimate maneuver that numerous Beckett characters make, not only the unnameable, but also Winnie, when she stares down and sings to Willie as he reaches for a gun at the end of Happy Days, the figures in play when they prepare to reprise their narratives interminably, the mouth in not I when she continues her, unend her unending narrative even as it becomes unintelligible behind the curtain. For Beckett, the world is a cruel cosmic joke and the best one can do is to look squarely at reality and courageously defy it. Persistence and suffering may not be much to hang one's hat on, but it seems to have sufficed for Beckett and for many of his characters. For all of his surrealist affinity, Beckett endows his characters with resources sufficient to endure and transcend the limitations imposed upon them 
by their surreal circumstances. Thank you. Thank you.